Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back to March 29, 2023, for our in-person event with New York Times bestselling author Raymond Arroyo for his new family book, The Unexpected Light of Thomas Elva Edison. Just this past October, we had the honor of hosting Raymond Arroyo here at the library for a program and book signing for his newly released Christmas book, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. Just prior to going on stage, we sat down in the green room with Raymond, and he excitedly told us about his latest project, a series of books he was planning on writing to get children and families inspired by little-known yet fascinating stories of historical figures who went from underdog to hero and the adults who inspired them to be the best they could be. And here we are, just five months later, gathered to discuss the first of this series, a book on Thomas Edison. The book might only be 30 pages, but it is a riveting read. There's so much to learn about Thomas Edison in those 30 pages that you'll be glad you read it. Raymond Arroyo sat down in conversation with Reagan Foundation and Institute Chief Marketing Officer, Melissa Giller. Let's listen. How are you guys? Thank you all for coming out. You made my night. What a beautiful day, Melissa. Beautiful day, just for you. Spectacular. Just for the, you mean you you yes. painted all of the mountains green. <laughs> the just sun for is me. shining for Thank you. you. You're welcome. Oh, you know, before we start, I should mention the bodyguard I brought with me. Please. Um, my bodyguard is somebody you might know. Uh, when you travel, I always think you should travel with professional bodyguards. So I brought the man in the suit himself. Some of you might know him as Jesus. Jim Caviezel <laughs> is down here. Thank you, Jim. Jim and his wife, Carrie, came and their son, David. So thank you all for making me feel so at home. I love being here. Okay, so let's get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. And I apologize if last time you were here, some of these questions were asked, but no, no, now no. it's me. So here we go. There we go. <laughs> so I think your first foray into books for young adults was the Will Wilder series. Yes. And then you moved to books for children and families um, around the holidays with religious messages. And now we hear, are here for historical figures. So what made you think to do a children or family book specifically on historical figures? I love that you call it a family book because people, you know, I think crudely refer to these books as picture books. I never call them picture books. I call them family reads. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is, look, I, I, I stumbled upon this story. This was just a kind of, someone had given me one of those big, great Edison biographies, and I'll be honest, like you, it sat on my shelf. It was a collector of dust. But uh, one, time, one day I decided to pick it up and take it on vacation with me, and I read sometimes from the back of the book to the front. So I flipped to the last chapter, and there was an interview with Elder Edison, when he's an old man. And in the interview, he says, my mother was the making of me. She allowed me to follow my bent and but for her faith and devotion to me. At a certain time in my life, I should never have become an inventor. And I thought, wait a minute, who is this mother? 
Why is he talking about her in these terms? And that biography didn't really explore that part of the story. So that began for me a four-month journey mm. that took me to the Edison Labs in West Orange, uh, Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, I, I, I read I don't know how many biographies, and I discovered and unearthed this little bit of Edison's story that I think is the heart of his story, which is a mother's devotion mm who saw possibility in her son mm -hmm. where the world saw nothing at all. Even his own father called him a dunce. Mm -hmm. So it was a great story I thought kids and families needed access to. So every, and then as I read these other great American lives, and not even American lives, young lives of great people, you quickly realize they all have what I like to term a turnabout tale. A moment when a crisis is faced, a challenge is faced, a decision is made, and history turns. And so I'm devoting myself to writing a series of these family reads that focus and frame the story as a turnabout tale. So that's kind of you know, the big picture, and now we can burrow into it. No, this is great. So, um, and, and my children yeah. are 20 and 23 and I still oh, found this book and I still found this book fascinating but yeah. it leads to my next question yeah. in that yes it's a family read but yeah. do you have a target age range for these books well I, I don't you I write for two audiences and this really applies to all of my books for young people families I try to write for the child today and the child tomorrow mm. when they're reading to their own children because that's the kind of books that excited me. I mean, Jungle Book and Treasure Island and Peter Pan and all those stories that my mother read to me, when I read them to my own children, they moved, they shift on you. Good literature has a way of kind of shifting on you. Um, and it's not moving, you are. Uh, we, we as adults perceive things in a different way. So they're themes and characters and moments that you miss as a child that when you hit them as an adult, the lights suddenly go on. So I write, this book too is written on two levels. There is a story in the foreground for the child. And look, Edison, he was a curious kid. So I told the illustrator, I told my, my publisher, I really want to lean into the experiments and the curious things he did to find out how the world worked. You know, he wanted to find out how bees made honey. So he cracked open a honeycomb. He just busted them open. Well, you imagine the bees went everywhere. I mean, this is not, you know, a calm way to approach, you know, study of bees. Uh, he wanted to learn how fire worked. So he set a little blaze in the corner of his dad's barn, As one burning does. the whole <laughs> farm down. Um, you know, so I mean, it wasn't a kind of. But if you if you visit these moments for kids, they're fascinated mm -hmm. by it. Um, that kind of tactile experience, and in the background is really the story of a mother and her son. That I think, judging from the letters and the notes and the response I've gotten on this book tour, um, it, it's touching people. They are, um, I think they're moved by it. And it comes at a time when our history is being challenged, as you know. I mean, you all are the keeper of Reagan's legacy here in many ways. That legacy, all historic legacies, I think are being eroded a little bit each day. It's our obligation to push back on that and find new ways to introduce people, mm -hmm. I think, to these great lives. Because look, and they're not saints. Nobody, I, when I walked in, I, I noticed Ronald Reagan had a cowboy hat on. He did not have a halo. And that's fine. Typical for, for Edison. He's not a saint. He did, he did, you know, pretty horrible things later in life with some of his competitors. He was a tough businessman. That's part of the deal. The story I'm focusing on, though, is 
a child who was discarded mm -hmm. and pushed aside like so many. And our educational system is so rigid, it doesn't always allow people who think outside the box. And Edison thought way outside the box. He was creating new boxes, and it threatened a lot of people. I think. Yeah, you know, President Reagan often said that an education isn't just in the classroom, it's in the home. And what his mother did for him just epitomizes that completely. Saved his life. So I think my last question on the family read portion is with your Christmas or holiday books, yeah. um, with these books, are you finding that you're solving an untapped area of journalism? Do you think there are family reads out there that, that are beloved? Well, I, you know, I think there are a few moments, there are a few things that families can gather around together at the same time and enjoy together. So I'm real, my real conceit in all of this, whether it's the Christmas books or these books or the Will Wilder books, I really want a meeting of the generations. That's what I'm trying to do, to get mothers and fathers and grandparents and, grand, uh, uh, and uncles and aunts to sit with that child and share their own experience. What happens after they close the book is just as important as whatever I put between the pages. Because I think that interaction, you know, when, when I was a child, we had the Carol Burnett show, we had uh, the sitcoms, we had different things that we all gathered together. I remember spending time with my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandmother who lived with us. That, that knowledge, the wisdom I got from that experience are things I treasure to this day. Mm -hmm. I mean, they shaped my life the way Edison's mother shaped his. Mm -hmm. And so this book is partly a reminder to adults that you have an obligation to recognize and try to see beyond even what the external appearance presents, the possibilities of that child, and to nurture those possibilities, and to defend and advocate for that child even when it means confronting a professor in the classroom who's saying, this kid is not good enough. Mm -hmm. Too dumb. Mm -hmm. Get out. Nancy Edison had the moxie to stand up and the devotion to her child to say, no, I know what he's capable of, and I'm going to at least allow him to try mm -hmm. to be who I think he is. So. Now, yes. <laughs> so... The story, the mm -hmm. words, are fabulous. But I also have to say the illustrations are yeah. stunning. Yeah. So can you talk about Christina? Is Christina Gehrman, it's very interesting. Um, you know, look, people always say, oh, it must be easy. You just crank, you're cranking these out, Raymond. Well, let me stop you. Slow <laughs> your roll. Um, it takes me four to six months to do research on a book like this. This is not something I write off the top of my head because you mu must know much more than you could possibly put into 19 flips. And as a, when you're dealing with family reads, picture books, you only get 19 turns of the page. That's all you have. That's a very limited amount of time to tell a story. So to me, they're like mini-movies. These are like storyboards for, for, for a movie. So as I'm writing it, I'm also writing a description of what I think I want to see in that spread. And you give the artist a kind of notion of what you'd like to see. Now, once it goes to her, in this case, Christina Gehrman, uh, like this first spread, uh, I love the idea that Edison was born in a windowless attic. All, you know, this dark place. So the first words are, as a baby, little Al Edison slept in a dark, windowless attic, but there was light within him. 
And I love the idea of him, and she came up with this idea of him reaching for the little candlelight in the corner of the room. You know, so again, she's telling you things that I now don't have to say. This was once a paragraph down here. I sliced a lot of that away because your picture begins to tell more than half of the line. So it's a, it's a dance, it's a, it's a um, real collaboration. And no matter who I'm working with, you send them your script, your manuscript, and then a description, and many times they will send back a sketch that improves what you originally saw and sometimes consolidates it, and I'll cut tons of copy. So it becomes an editing exercise at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but you're, you're really, like you said, I love so many people who told me, oh, I didn't know this about Edison. I didn't know he did this as a man. I didn't know he did, he did this as a child. I, I want to surprise you mm -hmm. and keep a story narrative. And to do that and have a story arc in 19 flips is... Well a challenge. Well, and that was going to be. But my, she did a beautiful job. And that was literally going to be my next question. So you've sort of answered this in bits and pieces throughout the other questions, but the process of researching this book, mm. the process of writing this book, because you're telling such an important story yeah. in 19 flips. So, and the research is vast. So how do you go about that research and narrowing it down? Well, it, it, that's hard. I I, st I stand back because of my training. My background was in the theater. So look, I was trained to. When you do your research. And, and I would do research as an actor. You, you delve deeply into this character, but there are only a certain amount of things that you can play, okay? So you, you're really looking for clues of what can you actually put, what behavior can you put on, what can you show that reveals much more than you can possibly say. And I think the same way as I approach this material. I'm looking for tells, character tells. So I'll give you an example. When I went to the Edison lab in West Orange, which is incredible. It's a vast place. If you go on my social media, go to Raymond Arroyo on Twitter or my, my Facebook account, I did all these little videos in the process of doing a special for Fox and my research and took you into the archives and into the, Vat the, the Vatican. Sorry, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> Slip of the tongue. Into the Edison Labs. It was like the Vatican for me, I have to tell you. Uh, and in fact, I told the archivist when I went in, I'm like, this place is like holy to me. Because once you read a life and you spend so much time with that person, to walk in, and the Edison Labs, he died in 31, 1931. The family gave the entire laboratory that he built and spent 44 years in to the federal government. It is one of the most intact national parks in the system, and it's really worth visiting. To, uh, it blew my mind. It's untouched. You walk in, and it's, it's like the turn of the century. And his office has all the clutter and the stuff it had on it in 1931. His, there, there, are, there are racks with his vests and his hats, his bowler hats in the corner. It's incredible. The, the cot he slept on in between experiments is in the corner. Really cool. But a long wind up to say, I went into the archive, and I found, and they showed me the sketch that Thomas Edison made of the phonograph, the very first one. It's a crude drawing with a stylus and a cylinder and a horn. But I said, my gosh, wh where did this come from? This idea of thinking visually and working this out. Well, it came from his childhood. When he was, when he was five years old, he would walk around town with little notebooks and sketch the signs he saw and the things that fascinated him. So he was always working in some ways with his eyes, 
with his hands and working his way through problems. That is really the mark of not only Edison as a boy, but Edison as an inventor. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for those little character tells. He was also, and I'll, I'll tie Christina Gehrman to this, my illustrator, I later found out, she is deaf. She's, she can't hear at all. Thomas Edison, at 12 years old, was deaf. He, he lost his hearing. Um, there are lots of news reels of him with his, with his ear, and people are literally yelling at him, and they're right here. And when he would record people for the phonograph, record musical acts, there's a big ear horn next to his chair mm. at the Edison Music Room, in, upstairs in the lab, and it's pressed right against the horn of the phonograph. That's the only way he could hear. Um, and later in life, he would actually get a board. This is cool. I know that you didn't ask this no, question. No, please. But it's such, I love this stuff. Um, he had a board, and the, the hearing was almost totally gone. And he put the board under the phonograph, and he would bite down on it like a cochlear implant. And the sound would reverberate through his skull, because that's the only way he could hear wow. fine vibrations wow. at a certain age. Brilliant guy. This is a century ago. So the, the, the vision of Thomas Edison, again, the light, the book is the unexpected light of Thomas Alva Edison. Not only was it unexpected, it is iridescent. It continues to glow to this very moment. It's, we are beneficiaries of his creation all around us. Right. Now, you may not know this. It may not have come out in the research. But one of the things I learned was he was deaf. I did not know he was deaf. Mm -hmm. And my first thought was, was it medical or was like one too many explosions in his parents' barn? You know, like, did any of that come out? That's a good guess. <laughs> uh, he, there was a, there's an old legend that, that um, Edison had a, he was a, really a hustler, this kid. At 12 years old, he's working the railroads. He's working the Grand Trunk Railroad, which ran between his home in Port Huron and Detroit. Well, he's selling newspapers on the train. He quickly realizes, well, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on this train. I want to do my chemistry experiments. Maybe they'll let me set a lab up in the baggage car, which they do. In fact, the Pullman created a little rack for him to keep his chemicals there. Well, one day the train lurched, his phosphorus fell, there was a fire in the baggage compartment. Fire is a big deal in the life of Alva Edison. Mm -hmm. He should have been a fireman, actually. But uh, blew up the baggage compartment, and, um, they, and when, the, when the conductor realized what was happening, the story was he boxed Edison's ears, smacked him aside the ears, and that caused the hearing loss. That story is probably not true. It looks like it may have been some kind of fever or illness that caused the hearing loss at around 12. We don't really know. That's kind of a blind spot. We know he was deaf, but, and we know he started realizing it at 12, but how it got there is a little bit of a mystery. Um, so we've talked a lot about his mother. Um, yeah. I wrote, um, she gave him the patience and space he seemed to need for his growing curiosity of how the world worked. In your research, I, I, I was almost more intrigued about the mother yeah. than I was about Thomas Edison as a child. Did yeah. you learn more about her and why she was the way she was? I dug everything up, up I could on her, and it was very scant mm -hmm. because many, even big biographies like, you know, God forgive us, Edmund Morris, um, who of course wrote the notorious Reagan biography, which I will not mention here. Um, Edmund Morris wrote the beautiful Teddy Roosevelt three-volume set. That gave him access to Mr. Reagan, who said, well, he should write my biography. Well, he did, except Edmund Morris 
inserted himself into the narrative of Reagan's biography as a fictional character. Yeah. So he appears next to Reagan like, Dutch and I went out and we were <laughs> lifeguards at the, what? What are you talking about? This is crazy. There would be like, if, if you saw pictures of me next to Edison on the Grand Trunk Railroad, or you know, creating the light bulb, come over here, we found the filament, Tom. I mean, this is crazy. But it was that, I will tell you though, it was Edmund Moore, I think it was Edmund Morris's biography. It was one of the three I first read. Uh, it's unsatisfying because, like he did with Reagan, by inserting himself, in this biography, he starts with Edison's death and it ends with his birth. I don't know if he thought Edison was a time traveler or what the conceit was, but that's, uh, th I remember going through it, but there's very little on Nancy Edison there, the mother. So when I show this to children, they always say, ooh, we love this, this kid's cool, but who's the ghost lady in the background? Oh. <laughs> and I, I said, when I first went to classroom and they told me that, I said, these ch children are always brilliant. They're insights, there's no filter, mm -hmm. and they tell you everything they feel, and they're really brilliant and insightful. Mm -hmm. And uh, life hasn't taught them to be polite or nice, and I like that, because mm -hmm. I'm the same way. Mm -hmm. um, but they say, who's the ghost lady? Well, in some ways, Nancy Edison is the ghost lady in this story. She's there. In the mind of her son, she was preeminent. And I'll tell you the turnabout tale. Can I share Please. this with people? This is really the heart of the story, the first turnabout in Edison's life. When he was eight years old, he sent to school. And uh, the Reverend E.G. Engel has a little schoolhouse. For three months, they try to teach him by rote and memorization, which was standard for the time. Education, that was what an education looked like. Edison probably had ADHD. That's what many biographers think that's what he had. And if you look at the practice of his life, how he read, how he worked, he, he certainly shows marks of the ADHD mind. Um, but for whatever reason, he could not focus on this study. He did not respond well. And um, the Reverend E.G. Engel declares one day he's addle-brained and he can't be taught. And Tom Edison breaks down in tears and runs home to his mother. And his mother, Nancy Edison, who was an educator, a teacher in Canada, now living in Port Huron, marches her son back to the Reverend E.G. Angle the next day, squares off with him and says, let me tell you something. My son has more intelligence than you'll ever have. And I'm going to take him home and I'm going to educate him myself. And she did. And that was the last formal training that Thomas Alva Edison ever received. And frankly, I don't know why in this moment of educational tumult, when people are questioning the mode of education. I don't know why Thomas Edison isn't the patron saint of homeschooling. Mm -hmm. He and Nancy Edison should certainly be the patron saint and saintess of, of homeschooling. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have the greatest inventor of all time who came from this mother, and here's what she did. And I'll give you parents and mentors and educators a little clue. She realized how he learned. And it was obvious from his childhood, he learned by experimentation and tinkering and touching and feeling. So she gave him, and I've held the book in my hand at the Edison lab, she gave him this compendium of electricity and, and natural sciences, which I think is very advanced. I'm trying to read it. I can't make heads or tails mm -hmm. of it. But it was a child's manual for scientific exploration. She gave him that, and then she gave him a chemistry set, which she allowed him to 
play with, and he's mixing acids and wires and creating little batteries, blowing things up. She finally moves him down to the basement because he's burning holes in the carpet and the furniture. Nobody wants that. Um, and then next thing you know, he's, he's building telegraph lines to a neighbor's house and creating his own telegraph. So he said later in life, the educational system is too rigid for our children, and it doesn't allow the freedom of mind that you need to explore. He was, a, he was very partial to Maria Montessori's mm. vision of education. Edison was near the end of his life. But what he said, and the great lesson for us is, you learn with your head and you learn with your hands. And we have to teach our children and allow them to not only learn, but insist that they learn both ways, because they'll learn deeper. They'll learn in a deeper way. And that's what set him apart, not only as a student, but as an inventor. He tinkered. He played, he pushed, and he used to always say, people say, oh, Mr. Edison, you're a genius. No, he said, the genius is in sticking to it. Mm. The genius is in sticking to it. He was tenacious. He would dig into a problem and not let go. And he used to say, I have 60,000 ways that I know this won't work. I'm looking for the one that it will. So it was a process of elimination. He worked through a process of elimination and it served him well. 2,000 patents worldwide. The microphone, the light bulb, the alkaline battery, the electric car, the, the curling iron, the tattoo pen. I could go on and on and on. All Thomas Alva Edison, dynamos and the lighting system, and I, I, I run out of I, I'm, I, the phonograph, the first record company. The, the, I, I mean, it's, it's an incredible contribution. And how dare we, how dare we, exempt or try to strafe this life from our American or global memory. Absolutely. It's too important. We have to hold on to it. We have to give this to our children. Absolutely. It's really important mm -hmm. for them. Yes. For them. So sticking to it may yeah. actually be the answer to this next question, okay. but if there's one message you want children and families to walk away with from this book, what is it? The most important message for me, the one that looms largest is he, not only would he, don't be afraid to fail. Mm. Thomas Edison used to always say, don't be afraid to fail. And he said, I built on not, he, he didn't dream up all that, like the light bulb. They say, oh, Thomas Edison created the light bulb. He actually perfected the light bulb. There were iterations of illuminated light. They just couldn't stay aglow. Mm. He created the filament and the vacuum seal that allowed the light to continue to glow for more than 13 hours. And then, brilliantly, he marketed it. He knew how to sell it, mass produce it, and he produced for an audience. The first creation of Thomas Alva Edison was a voting machine. <laughs> he was the first Dominion and the first Simtronic or whatever that company is. He created a voting machine. And he tried to sell it to Congress. They didn't want it. And the reason they didn't want it is because all they wanted to do was debate. They didn't want a record of a vote. They didn't want quick votes because things would have passed. They wanted to debate. So no one would buy his instrument. And that day he said, I will never create something that people don't need. Hmm. So he's very practical. So, but he said, I built on the failures of others. He, when they stopped creating, Edison picked it up, 
worked through the problem and found a new and better way. Mm. And he would always say that. He said, oh, this is such a great line. I'm so glad. Thank you, Lord, for reminding me of it. He said, our great weakness as a people is we give up too soon. Mm -hmm. You have to continue to try just one more time. Mm -hmm. That was Edison. And a great, and it, and it, you know, being here at the Reagan Library. It can it, be done. Yeah, it can be done. <laughs> right. It reminds me of Ronald Reagan in so many ways. I mean, I almost get tears in my eyes when you come, when you're in a place like this, when you go to the Edison Labs mm -hmm. and you see the brilliant possibilities of America, mm -hmm. how, the, how it opened up such goodness and, and endless possibilities to the world the innovative power of the American mind and the American system that facilitated it. Edison, when he was 12 years old, learned on that railroad not just how to sell papers. He was selling papers and he quickly realized when the, because the Civil War is going on, by the way, remember. He met Abraham Lincoln, by the way, on that train. There's an old letter I saw that he wrote in his own hand where he's remembering meeting Lincoln on the train. He never actually spoke to him, but he saw him and tipped his little hat to him. Uh, probably sold him a paper, who knows. But uh, he noticed that when the Civil War broke out and a big battle was raging, he would sell more papers. So Edison, at 13 or 14 years old, says, next time I'm in Detroit, because they would stop over for six hours in Detroit. I'm going to go pick up some used printing press material from the Detroit Free Press, which he did. He, he used his pennies to buy little uh, the newsprint type mm -hmm. and then the, an old printer. He installed it in the back of the baggage compartment. He started writing a little paper called The Herald, which he would publish every day. It was like a gossip rag about what was happening along the train tracks. And he would sell that because now he doesn't have to cut anybody in. He keeps all the profits. The guy was a little entrepreneur. So the, and it was the um, archivist at the Edison Lab who pointed out to me brilliantly. And, and that whole, the train adventure is, is detailed in the book. Um, but he pointed out that it was in that moment, as a young man, 13, 14, he's beginning to understand not only how to create something that people need, but how to market it and brand it and sell it. So he could both, he had production and he had sales. And that's how he became the wizard of Menlo Park. Mm. And I hear people say, oh, you know, what about Tesla? He, he, he ripped Tesla off. Well, okay, everybody take a deep breath with me. <laughs> okay, Tesla was a brilliant, Scientist and Edison recognized that he worked for Tesla. But remember, by the time Tesla came around, Edison already had laid electric grid all over the world. Tesla worked for, for Edison in the Paris office. Okay, so this wasn't the beginning of the career. This is the end of the career. He's, old, he's an old man. Um, and he asked him to improve the dynamo. Edison was not wild about Tesla's upgrades to his dynamo, and he refused to pay him the money. That caused this splintering in the relationship. Tesla then favored alternating current. Now I'm really getting into the weeds. <laughs> uh, Edison wanted direct current. That was the big war between George Westinghouse, who backed Tesla, and Edison. Well, Tesla and Westinghouse won. So I don't know why everybody's so upset about Tesla and Edison. But it's like he didn't steal from, from Tesla. He stole from everybody. <laughs> He, he was like a pirate. He would see where people stopped, he'd take their invention, he'd improve it, he'd mass market it, and then he'd patent it. Well, 
Welcome to entrepreneurship right. and capitalism. I don't know what to tell you. Genius. Yeah, he's a genius. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. He's the Walt Disney of invention. Mm. He really is. You think Disney came up with Donald Duck and Goofy and Cinderella and he sat there laboring into the night painting and drawing? No. He hired people who did that. He drove them. He had the big vision. And then he went out and he sold it to an audience who, who needed it. And he brought wonderful feelings and an improved life and happiness to a lot of people. And I think that's, good. that's a good thing. There's nothing to be ashamed of there. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyway. Maybe I'm wrong. More from our Reagan Forum with Raymond Arroyo after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to our Reagan Forum with Raymond Arroyo. Um, you keep talking that this is a series. It so is. Are you allowed to share with us who might be next? Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to share with you, but now I can. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I'm like Barack Obama. Yes, we can. <laughs> um, I'm trying to get, bring everybody in. We got Ronald Reagan and Edison. <laughs> now I'm bringing Obama in. Um, the next book, this is, as I said, Turnabout Tales, and it's a moment of crisis in these young lives. The next book, and I kind of just tipped it off, Edison on the train as a boy met Abraham Lincoln. Mm. The next book in the series is the marvelous mischief of Tad Lincoln, who is Abraham Lincoln's youngest son. And he's an ignored part of history. People don't spend a lot of time talking about him or even thinking about poor Tad. He gets lost in the shuffle. But he's the last son of Abraham Lincoln. He is the, the son that Lincoln clings to during the Civil War. He is tied to a very important national tradition that I don't want to ruin by talking about now. But, um, and he is there at key moments, including pardoning of, of uh, soldiers, the Emancipation Proclamation, and the year a national holiday is established. All of that Tad Lincoln is not only privy to, but party to. And I'm going to tell that story next. It's about the importance of a child in a parent's life. So it's kind of an inverse turnabout tale, where the child is, it's not the parent who is needed in this story so much as the child was needed for the parent. So it's kind of cool. So that's next. But look, I, I hope to preserve these lives because there are wonderful lessons for us. I believe every one of these stories, history, is a roadmap for living. It teaches us how to live better and it warns us where not to go. And if you don't look at that history, and at least recognize what went before. Like Edison, you can't surpass what went before if you don't know what it was. And you can't learn what to avoid in the future if you don't know what was. So I'm trying to keep these vibrant, fun, important characters in the public eye and hopefully in a lot of young hearts. 
So obviously you can only write so many books in a given year. Yeah. Will you be continuing your other series of sort of religious and holiday messages or are you uh, going to focus on There are a couple of there are a couple of Christmas books that uh, I've I've thought about. I'm 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 noodling with okay. them, but nothing yet. Okay. I'm committed to this series. Great. And this is a big, it's a heavy series. Because, I mean, it takes a lot of labor. Yes. It's not, you know, something you can kind of toss off. And I don't write books that, you know, and I write my own books, mm. you know, which is a hard thing because you're doing TV and you've got a family and you're running. But I, I, I like, if my name's on the cover, I like you to know that good or bad, it's mine. Um, and I do think there's a certain worldview and a a detail, um, there are details you'll find in the book that I think come from my seeing it. Um, it's particular, and I, I would worry about offshoring that to mm -hmm. somebody else. You can do it, I get, you know, I know people who do that and have done it, and it's fine, it works out well. Um, but these are, these are delicate stories, they're very delicate stories, they're like flowers. You know, you don't trust the orchid to just the guy who waters your lawn, you know? And I'm raising orchids over here. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Um, if it's okay, I have a few questions unrelated to yes. the book. Yes. Um, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce this right. Yes. Um, when I was sort of preparing for this and, and doing some research, I came up on, um, is it Storyented? Storyented. Can you talk about that? Are you still connected with yes. that? Yes. I founded, a few years ago, when I, when I started the Will Wilder series, I was visiting schools. And... Um, I guess it broke my heart this one day. We went to a school in a very poor um, neighborhood, and I got a donor to give books to the children before I went in, because I knew they couldn't afford it. Sometimes schools will buy the books at a discount. But this donor gave the books, and when I walked in, there were about 100 kids, and all of them had their books, and they were doing this to their books when I walked in. And they had these little angelic faces, and they were just Rub and, I, and I turned to the principal and I said, what are they doing? And she said, oh, honey, they've never had a book of their own. They only check books out of the library, and we told them, these are your books. And I, I got to tell you, I kind of had a moment in the hallway and said, I got to wait here a second. And this, is, this is awful. Um, and I thought, I, I, first of all, I never want to walk into a room like that again. I think every child should have books. Books are our way to the past and the future, and they're a lifeline for many, many kids, particularly in tough communities and in tough circumstances. So what Storyented does is not only donate books to kids who can read, because what you find is you give them a book, but they won't read the book. They don't want to read the book. So what we try to do is not only do you give a book away, but you bring that author, sometimes really big, well-established authors, into those classrooms, mm -hmm. into those schools who otherwise might not see these people. And you excite the kids about that particular book. So they not only get it, they read it, and the author introduces them into the world. Mm -hmm. Because I think an author is the best advocate for his work or her work always. So Storyented, that's the name of the, the literary initiative, storyented.com, you can read more there, but it's the idea is that stories orient us in the world and they teach us our place in the world and how we fit in or how we can fit in through other lives. So I'm trying to help everybody get story What a That's wonderful what program. About. Yeah, absolutely. I should bring it to the Reagan Library. You should bring it to the Reagan Library. Um, so again, doing some research, looking up some things, um, and I was on the website, The Catholic Thing. Uh-oh. Uh -huh. And I saw a story that I giggled at yeah. because it said you were part of a papal posse. 
<laughs> and I was like, Papal Posse. Papal po I was like, what is that and how do you become a member? Oh my goodness. You want to join the Papal Posse, <laughs> well, Melissa? You know, I am Jewish, but you know. That's okay. The first guy was Jewish too. <laughs> he was. You're in good company. <laughs> Who do you think we get down on our knees right. before? I always say, a good Jewish mother, a Jewish son, and all the friends were Jewish. You're already in the club, Melissa. Um, I, the, many years ago when Pope Francis was elected, a, I, I had brought together a group of um, Vatican experts, church experts, Father Jerry Murray, who those of you who watch my show will know who Father Gerald Murray is, and Robert Royal, who's kind of a, a church historian. And the pair of us, or the three of us, came together, and I called us, um, what was it originally? The... Um, conclave crew Ooh, because they were electing a pope and it was a conclave. Well, after the new pope was elected, I had to come up with something, so I called us the Papal Posse, and the name stuck. And now it's become kind of a <laughs> viral hit, and uh, everybody wants to find out what the Papal Posse is I saying. loved it. So that's it. That's well, it. thank you. So um, my last question before we open it to the audience Oh, good. Is, is a little bit more serious, okay. if that's okay. Um, so I was um, looking at some of your recent um, uh, shows and articles on your news channel, and a lot of them focused on the threat that China is posing right now in the rest of the world. And mm. I wondered if you could just maybe share what you think is the biggest threat they pose, or, or mm. what you think now between China and America. It's a monumental threat. I mean, um, you know, Laura has been so good and ahead of the curve on this um, for so many years and Gordon Chang and my dear friend, Cardinal Joseph Zen, who is kind of a freedom fighter in China, who has for years been warning that Hong Kong was going to fall like the rest of China and the religious freedom and the human rights freedom that they enjoyed in Hong Kong would not, be, would not endure. And um, people in the church and certainly governments looked away and didn't care. Well, Zen was right. Uh, our friend Jimmy Lai, the great you know, he was like the Rupert Murdoch of Hong Kong. Jimmy Lai, a billionaire, could have gone to one of his houses in Florida or Europe. He stayed. He continued to stand with the democracy advocates and, and fighters in Hong Kong, a very faithful, good man. He stayed behind, and they jailed him. He's in jail right now um, for doing nothing but speaking out and daring to say, we need our freedom, we need our God and you're not it on either count. China is an existential threat in so many ways, but the Chinese are brilliant. They understand the power of communication. Mm -hmm. They dominate, they steal intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And if you read the founders, if you go back to Alexander Hamilton, read it. Hamilton understood when the, when the Republic was founded that you have to protect the market at least early on protect your market, and protect your intellectual innovations and property. You protect them, and you keep that wall high, and you become an exporter, not an importer of everything. We have become now an importer nation, largely. We offshore everything. Our children know how to play TikTok challenges and don't know how to lay pipe or build a house. That's a problem. And um, we need to get back to making things well. That's the other hidden message here. I want kids to get inspired and excited about creating new things, things that we need, mm -hmm. things that we, 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 we need for our future. Um, 
ultimately China will crumble because it is built like the Soviet Union was and is on sand. It is, it is a hostile regime. Um, there is no way that will endure. It is an aging population, but they have stolen brilliantly so much of our technology um, and pirated it. And, uh, and sadly, we put up no resistance as a country. We kowtow to them now in a way that is humiliating. And now China is the prime mover of world events. They've taken over in the Middle East now. They brought, whoever thought, Saudi Arabia and Iran, these ancient foes, would be brought together. Only a weak foreign policy and, and a weak diplomacy and a weak stance in the world could do that. Or, or I mean, and, and now Russia and China together. This is madness. So yes, it's a huge intel, uh, existential threat. It's a global threat. And um, we have to figure out a way forward. And I think when, you're, when you have a strong America, these people are back on their heels. Mm -hmm. When you have a weak America, the monsters come out to play. And that's where we are, mm. sadly. Pray for China. Pray for those people there. Mm. And that they can rise up. Thank you. Great, great answer. So. Um, we're going to do uh, audience Q&A now. We just mm. ask that you raise your hands. We have microphones. We want to make sure that we capture your question for the cameras in the back. So if anyone has a question, raise your hand, and we'll bring a microphone to you. Uh, Ishkret, there's one right there. Microphones. Whoops. Whoops. Hello there. Um, I've, uh, I love the seen and unseen segments that you do with Laura. And Thank you. Love it. You, a lot of times, bring everything back to New Orleans. Were you born and raised in New Orleans? I am born and raised in New Orleans. And the truth is, everything does run back to New Orleans, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not really. Um, no, I, I'm born and raised in New Orleans. And I love my very broken and, in many ways, uh, crime-ridden city. Um, it is a, it's a beautiful, great place, but like so many parts of America, when you don't hold the center and when corrupt individuals get into power, um, bad things can happen. And New Orleans is a great warning, I think, to the rest of the country that the food can be the best in the world, the party can be the best in the world, the people are the most warm, fun, exciting, jubilant, joyous, communal people. But for all of that, you can still lose a city if you're not very careful. Mm. And bad policies and decades of corruption, maybe centuries of corruption, we're 300 years old, mm. um, you, can, you can destroy something that was so precious. But um, yeah, I was born and raised there. So many friends there. My parents are still there. I live in my old zip code. It keeps me grounded. It, we lived in Washington, D.C. for a long time. And I'm glad I'm not there anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I'm home for all its imperfections. At least it's a shade of America, a piece of America. Um, DC is not. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a question over here by uh, uh, this oh, young man. Yes, sir. Uh, 
I'm a big fan of the Will Wilder series. You don't uh, say. <laughs> when is the fourth book going to come out? You know, that's the question. I, get, I had a, a little girl the other day, a little girl, a young lady the other day, when I was getting off a plane, came up to me, and she had the third book in her hand. And I guess her parents recognized me, or she didn't. She ran over. Oh, look, he's got the third oh, book nice. in his hand. <laughs> you are going to get a trick. Come see me after for the signing. I have something for you. Um, he said, uh, but the little, the little girl came up and she said, Mr. Arroyo, you have to tell me what happens with Aunt Lucille and when is the fourth book coming? Because at the end of book three, there is a cliffhanger. Will Wilder's sidekick, his 66-year-old uh, great Aunt Lucille, who, you know, is a kick-butt kind of keeper of the flame, who taught him so much. She is, um, I don't know how you'd describe it. How would you describe it? She has a little assault difficulty at the end of the book. A supernatural assault. And I stopped the book there. Mm. I am working on book four, I promise you. Um, I, in fact, I just had a meeting with Random House last week, and hopefully it will be coming within the next year. But if I do that one, they want me to write the other two, so I'll get it all done. Okay. Great question, Bob. And if not, I'll just do an audio book for you and tell you what happened. <laughs> it's all plotted out. That's a big series. It's seven books in the series as I saw it. And I, I, I outlined every one of those books before I wrote the first one, which is why it's so hard to write. But I love those books, and I love that you love those yes. books. Thank you. Uh, there's a question over here. Yes, ma'am. Hi. I'm uh, Elaine McKern, and I have been uh, trying for the last 30 years to get good books into our schools. I was on the school board back in 94 to 98. Wow. This is my daughter, Heather. She's mm -hmm. Down syndrome. They isolated her. I fought for her mm. in the schools. So they be included her then, and then they isolated her. And then I said, that's it. We're, I'm going to take her where she needs to go. But mm. I appreciate this book. She loves her Christmas book, oh. the, the Three Wise Men. She's got this one here already. Oh. We couldn't come and sit down here without her getting it. Oh, thank you. And thank you, Heather, right? Yes. Thank yes. you, Heather, for she coming. She was here when she was eight. She's now 38. Wow. And uh, I helped open this. So Well, thank so. God she had a good mama who advocated for her and loves her enough to do so. God bless you. I mean, that is really... And I, I, you don't know, ma'am, the number of, Eileen? Ellen. Elaine. Close. Close. Um, Elaine, I, you don't know the number of mothers who come up to me and say, this is my story. They told me my child couldn't be taught, and he's now a professor at MIT. You know, it's the, because they don't know what to do with these crackling minds or people who perceive things differently. But the educational system today is just not built to accommodate, it, it's a one-size-fits-all. We have to get out of that. Mm -hmm. Somehow we have to get out of it. But thank God for parents like you who are advocating and fighting for your child, which is what we all have to do, all of us. We're going to go to this oh, side now. And I'll come to you. Yes, yes, ma'am. Um, what was your favorite book growing up? What was my favorite book? What's yours? Small Steps Year Got Polio. What is it called? Small Steps the Year I Got Polio by wow. Peg Carrot. Okay. My favorite book growing up was Sherlock, the Sherlock Holmes books. I read all the Arthur Conan Doyle books, and I loved them. I had a teacher in fifth grade, and it tells you the power of a teacher. I'm glad I brought him up. 
Um, he was a Christian brother. His name was Brother Raphael. And when I was in fifth grade, I was not much of a reader. I read comic books. That was it. And in fifth grade, Brother Raphael would read us Ellery Queen Mysteries. Ellery Queen was an old-timey detective, but it was actually a pair of guys who wrote the Ellery Queen Mysteries. But they were cool mysteries. They were well-written. And he would read half of the mysteries until the body dropped. And when the person died, so all the, you had all the clues at that point, he'd close the book and say, gentlemen, if you'd like the book, it's here on my desk. <laughs> and we'd elbow each other to get to the book. And, um, and that began my love of reading. And the truth be told, I think every book, it's so important what you read and when you read it. Mm. Because the first books you read do set your mind in some ways. And I have always been and am prone to. The Will Wilder series is really a mystery series in some ways. Who done it? Who is it? Where are they going? What's he doing? It's unpacking mysteries. And all these lives are like little mystery boxes to me. Um, so it did set my mind. I became a big fan of Agatha Christie. And no, they should not change her words. <laughs> Leave Agatha Christie's words alone. Explain, but I'll, I'll, I'll add this caveat. I have no problem with putting a description in the fore part of the book that says this book was written in 1925. Terms used in this book include this, 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 which is no longer socially acceptable, and here's why. But at that time, they referred to people this way, or they said, use this idiom. You know why? Because that gives that child and all of us insight into 1925. You need to know what happened in 1925 and why people thought that way, or you can't understand or unpack history. So, uh, well, uh, let we're me going back go here. We're going over here now again. Yes, ma'am. Or sir. Sir. Thank you. Is it on? Uh, thank you, Mr. Royal, and particularly for coming and for writing and for your work on Fox News. I watch it every night. Oh, thank and, you. And uh, that's great. I, wanted I to hope know you DVR'd it tonight because <laughs> in about 35 minutes, I'm going to go to a truck and do my scene and unseen hit and then come yeah. finish the signing. <laughs> True. You'll be able to watch tonight the rerun. You'll see at 11 o'clock tonight. Midnight when, uh, when I get home. But my question is this. You know, you've talked about Thomas Edison's mother and the impact she had on him. How did your mother, your own mother, mm. shape your life and your work? Great question. Mm -hmm. You're going to make me cry. Oh. <laughs> um, my, I dedicate this book to my mother and my wife because both of them, um, my wife advocated and is an incredible, has been the most incredible mother to our children. Um, and she, like my friend Carrie, who's here, and so many other mothers, they're with their children, and they're so close to those children, they know how they move and how they think and how they, they, they learn. And you have to, every one of my children learn differently. Three of them, three different modes of learning, three different schools. They didn't all go to one school, because they learn differently. And Rebecca taught me one child does not set the benchmark for the other, and, and nor should they. They're their own people. And our job is to allow those people to flourish and create whole people, intact people, and good citizens. That's what we're here to do. She did that beautifully. My wife, and she still does. We have a 17-year-old still in the house. Um, the others are finally loosed on the world. Good luck to you all. <laughs> um, 
In the case of my mother, Linda, who was such a, um, the same thing, my mother read to me constantly. I, I'll tell you the other thing, and I, we didn't get into this. I didn't even think about this till I was talking the other day. When I was in second grade, and this may be why this story stuck in my craw and I had to write it. Edison, remember, was thrown out of school in second grade. When I was in second grade, I had a nun. Her name was Sister Agnes. Sister Agnes and I had a little disagreement because as you, I, you're going to have trouble imagining this. When I was younger, I, I talked a lot. <laughs> what are you laughing about? What's so funny? Nothing funny there. But I was, um, I was a chatterbox. I'd finish my work because I, it was easy for me. So I'd finish the thing, close it. And I was turning and talking to Jennifer behind me. I remember her to this day. And all the kids around me and telling jokes and stuff. Nothing like I am today. Nothing at all. <laughs> and uh, this sister did not like the Raymond show at all. And she would say, Mr. Arroyo, come here. And I came up, she'd put your hands on the table. I won't go into the whole story, but she pulled out the typical ruler. And it got ugly, not for me, for her. And um, <laughs> I'm not going to tell the story because I'm saving it for the one-man show. But I will just say, it ended spectacularly, and I was thrown out of her class. She would not let me back in the classroom. So they sent me to a fourth grade class where I finished out second grade. But that fourth grade teacher loved me and understood that I was kind of a wild kid and <laughs> she leaned, let, gave me things to do and I excelled. And I was doing fourth grade work and second grade work. It was fine. But my mother fought for me through all that period and defended me. And my grandmother, you know, I, I, I've always had these great incredible women in my life. My grandmother who took me to the theater when I was a kid because my grandfather had a restaurant in New Orleans who would never go with her, couldn't go with her. So I got to see Yule Brenner and Carol Channing and Ethel Merman and Richard Burton and Rex Harrison in front of me in the third row as a 10 and 11 year old and Frank Sinatra and I, mean, I saw all these people and they shaped my life and changed my life. But she, but for her, none of that would have happened. So the power of a parent mm -hmm. who loves you, who understands you and loves you, is a very important thing. And I'm going to leave you with this, and then I'm going to go to my friend in the back there. I see you with your hand up. Um, when I was in Angola prison a few weeks ago with some friends who were working on a project, I wasn't sent there. I went <laughs> to do a project. And um, though some would like me to go to Angola prison and just you know, throw the key away. But uh, I went in, and I met a guy on death row working in the welding shop. They gave him a few hours to work in the welding shop. And he passed his certification. He was so proud. Big guy, huge. And he, I said, how, tell me, how did you get the certification? He said, well, the warden's husband helped me. He gave me books and he helped me. And he was tough on me. And he said, I'm going to treat you like my son. Now, this is a big man, 35 years old, 38 years old, six foot four, huge guy, crying in the welding shop. And he said, it was the first time Anybody love me like a, a father or a mother? And he sat next to me when I took the certification exam. And he was like my angel there. And I had someone who loved me. And he treated me like his son. And I thought, my God, if this guy had had a father or a mother who cared, he probably wouldn't be here on death row. Mm -hmm. So the power of parents, it's all a reminder. And Nancy Edison, for me, just brings it full circle. I, and I hope others understand it, too. Important.
So um, this is this is going to be our last. Oh, question. the last question. We save the best to last. Which of the Will Wilder books is your favorite? What, one more time, honey. Which, uh, is your which favorite? Will Wilder book is your favorite? Which is the favorite? I, you know, that's like asking me what my favorite, uh, you know, child is. It's really hard. Um, you know, or my favorite hair follicle. It's very hard. I love them all. And I'm holding dear close to them. That's not funny either. What are you laughing um, I, I, I kind of, the last one is probably my favorite, um, the, the uh, Amulet of Power, because it was so hard to write. Um, and, and the Will Wilder series, for those of you who don't know, Will Wilder is a 12-year-old child, a mischievous 12-year-old, who uh, has a supernatural gift. He can see things others can't. It's kind of young Indiana Jones meets Stranger Things, for those of you who know that. <laughs> um, I used to describe it as young Indiana Jones meets The Exorcist, but <laughs> that scared too many publishers, so I stopped that. But he does encounter very formidable demons. And we find out Will is part of a family that has been battling these things for centuries. But Will has a very important role and in each of the books, he encounters real artifacts and antiquities that you can find in museums and libraries and churches all over the world. And you can actually find, like the helmet of jo St. Joan that's in that book is actually in the Metropolitan Museum collection. So you can go see it. And I've had people there say, you know, did you write this book about the, the thing? Because all these kids come and they ask, they want to see the helmet. I said, well, good. I hope you show it to them. Um, whether it was her helmet or not, that's another matter. But um, it's there. You can see it. You can touch it. I love the idea when you can bring things in the real world and put a little spin on them and make them as important as they should be because they draw out lessons and pull things from us that we need. And that's what the Will Wilder series does. So that, um, but I love that book. That's a fun, that's, that may be my favorite. Though in the second book, the staff of Moses is in the museum in the middle of Perilous Falls, the town that Will Wilder lives in. And the staff of Moses goes missing. And they have to find it because the plagues of the Old Testament are falling on the town of Perilous Falls. And they're dodging frogs and hail, and it's a lot of fun. So that's a fun mm -hmm. book, too. I love all of them. I can't pick a favorite. But thank you for reading it. <laughs> uh, so we want to thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, we're going to take them up to the book signing. We hope you see you there. And we can't wait for you to come back with your Tad Lincoln. I can't wait. Thank you all for coming out. Thank love you. you. Thank you for watching and reading. Raymond Arroyo is an internationally known journalist, producer, and New York Times bestselling author, a Fox News contributor, and often a host. He's also the founding news director, managing editor, and lead anchor for EWTN News, which is seen in more than 350 million homes on six continents and heard on the radio throughout the United States. Signed copies of The Unexpected Light can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. Thank you for listening.
For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.